This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Hello and welcome to Nursing Australia. I'm Matthew St. Ledger. Regular Nursing Australian listeners may notice that I'm a new voice hosting the podcast, and that's because I'm new here at APNA. I'm probably best described as part registered nurse, part health reporter. Fair to say I'm pretty excited about taking a role here at APNA that allows me to use my full skill set. I'm here to help bring you the highlights and happenings in the world of primary health and shine a spotlight at those at the centre, our nurses. In this, the latest instalment of the Nursing Australia podcast, we get all your COVID vaccine rollout questions answered by our expert panel as the national rollout hits some speed bumps. How can we build confidence in the vaccine rollout amongst the community? Because this is something that the nurses role is vital to. Discover a nurse-led digital health project in the pipeline For me, uh, digital health is about that immediacy of having information available um, and that ease of access to that information, which is so important. And then get some tips and tricks for nurses on presenting and public speaking. But first, the news. The wheels fall off Australia's COVID vaccine rollout. A second AstraZeneca clotting case reported in Australia, Johnson & Johnson vaccine clotting concerns in the US, and COVID vaccines for kids and pets in the pipeline. This is Nursing Australia News. Hello, I'm Casey Mannix. The Australian COVID-19 vaccine rollout has been derailed by new recommendations that the Pfizer vaccine is now recommended for those aged under 50. The federal government have abandoned all vaccination targets. Health Minister Greg Hunt says they are adapting. We do have to uh, do some replanning. That's a challenge. But every day, every day in this pandemic, we've had to adapt. Healthcare workers have been urged to report any suspicious side effects in patients who had previously received the AstraZeneca vaccine after a second case of a rare but serious clotting disorder was confirmed in Australia. The Western Australian woman in her 40s received the jab recently and developed blood clots. The TGA confirmed that the event was linked to the vaccine and the woman is in hospital receiving treatment. Injections of Johnson & Johnson's single-dose coronavirus vaccine has come to a sudden halt in much of the US. Federal health agencies called for the pause after six recipients out of nearly 7 million developed a rare disorder involving blood clots within about two weeks of vaccination. All recipients were women between the ages of 18 and 48. One woman died and a second has been hospitalised in critical condition. The White House's Chief Medical Advisor, Dr Anthony Fauci, spoke with CBS Evening News. This is a very rare event. It's less than one in a million. Having said that, you still want to be alert to some symptoms such as severe headache, some difficulty in movements or some chest discomfort and difficulty breathing. Pfizer has begun seeking approval from governments around the world to expand their approval of their vaccines to include adolescents aged 12 to 15. On April 9, the company requested regulatory agencies to make amendments to their emergency use declarations. Meanwhile, in Russia, the country's agriculture safety watchdog has registered the world's first coronavirus vaccine for dogs, cats, minks, foxes and other animals. While many scientists say the virus causing COVID-19 initially jumped from bats to humans, perhaps through another intermediary, infections have since been reported worldwide in animals from zoos to mink farms. 
And in the UK, residents are feeling a sense of freedom as Britain reopens after 175 days of hard lockdown due to the pandemic. Their lockdown has been two months longer than the 111-day lockdown experienced in Melbourne. Abner has been hosting a series of COVID webinars to help keep our nurses up to date on the vaccine rollout and have been receiving literally thousands of questions via the Apner Nurse Support Line. In past webinars, we've had a Q&A at the end of each session, but members have been calling for more. So in our most recent webinar, we assembled an expert panel to answer any of your unanswered questions. We started with introductions. Uh, we have a star-studded panel for us this evening. Professor Robert Boy um, is a professor of paediatrics and child health at the University of Sydney and a senior fellow at NSEERS, the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. Thanks for being with us, Robert. Uh, Kedaki Sharma, uh, Dr. Kedaki Sharma is a general paediatrician and staff specialist at NSEERS. Kedaki provides scientific technical support to the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, ATAGI. Karen Booth is APNA president and has worked in primary healthcare as a primary healthcare nurse and nurse manager since uh, 1998. During the COVID pandemic, Karen has sat on various boards and roundtables, engaging with the Department of Health and, and giving, her, giving her two cents worth. Suzanne Blackaby is also with us tonight, who is a registered nurse um, and is um, APNA's nurse ambassador. No, sorry, nurse educator, apologise. Um, and uh, she has a cert for an assessment and training and also an authorised nurse immuniser. Um, and to ask our panel the questions this evening is Beck Cox. Uh, she is a registered nurse and a member of the APNA project team. Thank you, everyone, for being here with us this evening. Just going to throw over to Suzanne to start with, um, who's going to give us an update on the uh, rollout where we are at the moment. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being back again to um, our next episode on our COVID um, rollout series. Uh, just a couple of updates for you before we get started with our guests. Um, the vaccine mandatory training has had several updates in the last few days. If you are, have already completed the training and you are just looking for the new information, you will see a little red square with the word new typed into it as you go through the modules and you can see any of the new information. The APNA COVID page is updated regularly and we've included AEFI reporting links for each state and territory in the state and territory boxes to make it easy for you to find. Um, like with many other things um, around immunisation, different states and territories have slightly different requirements um, that all feed back to the TGA, but all the links that you need are in your state or territories box at the bottom of the APNA COVID page. Uh, we have um, been speaking to government on several roundtables um, and Karen represents APNA in a variety of ways and some of the information we've received in the last day has been a report that some healthcare workers under the age of 50 have been denied um, Pfizer vaccine at hubs. Uh, that's a problem. If this is you, then can you please email the APNNS support line with your details and the details of the hub and make it attention to me. And we're going to feed um, any reports and numbers back to government on that so that situation can be sorted out sooner rather than later. 
the federal government is meeting with the state and territory governments on Monday to look at lots of different issues, but including one that you have, a lot of you have been asking about, and that's the potential for some type of state-based mass vaccination. So we understand that that meeting happens Monday and we expect some updates from Wednesday on next week. If you were around with APNA last year, you will remember our surveys and we have another one out now. Now, if you want to tell us not, what's not working well for you where you practice um, with the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, please do our pulse check survey. Uh, you can find links on our website um, in this slide deck, also in the Connection newsletter. Um, if we gather the information, we can collect good data, we can make positive representations on your behalf to government. So we would encourage you to keep communicating, keep telling us what's going on, um, use the Pulse Check survey and use your nurse support line. Thanks, Mitch. Wonderful. Thank you, Suzanne. Um, we're going to dive straight into the Q&A questions and there are a fair few already coming through. Don't, remember, don't forget to jump into the Q&A panel and also upvote by giving the little thumbs up. Um, but I'll throw over to, uh, to Beck, who's going to launch in to the first question. Take it away, Beck. Great. Thanks, Mitch. Um, so probably the most common upvoted question at the moment is um, having lots of over 50-year-olds feeling like they're getting the worst option with AZ. What are your thoughts on this? So who would like to take this one? I was going to start with um, Karen and then... We'll see. Good question. Um, I'm proudly over 50. I've had my AZ vaccine. I went to uh, the clinic at Olympic Park, went on the website. I got in the same or well, the next day and, um, and had my vaccine. A little bit of a red lump, but I feel, I actually feel um, confident in the vaccine. I think that um, from the information coming through, we'll have reasonable reasonably good coverage and I, the other thing I think we need to say to people is there is no alternative um, that uh, the vaccine is the best protection that we have at the moment and I also sit on the uh, clinical evidence guideline task force um, in the um, leadership group and I see a lot of the information coming through and at the moment um, you know, they would agree it is the best option that we have. Thanks, Karen. Um, Robert or Kataki, have you got anything to add to that around the evidence as to why it's okay for over 50s and not for under 50s? You can go first, Kataki. Um, sure. So firstly, uh, anyone 18 and over can still have the AstraZeneca vaccine, including people under 50. Um, part of the reason that cutoff was given was, was because it is really difficult for individuals to weigh up the risks and benefits for themselves. It's not an easy thing for a GP or a, an immuniser uh, or a nurse to take a patient through that conversation, especially when they're seeing all these scary things in the news. So what Atagi did was they looked at the age-specific risk of this particular condition, TTS, thrombosis with a thrombocytopenia syndrome, um, versus the risks of getting severely unwell or going to hospital or ICU from COVID-19. And that risk rises very steeply above the age of 50. So it is much more beneficial to be vaccinated and get the protection for people in that age group. And that was the primary reason that the 50 cutoff was given. 
there are many people under 50 for whom vaccination is clearly much more beneficial than not being vaccinated. If you, for example, have a medical condition that increases your risk of severe COVID, or if you have a high risk of exposure, like from travel or from your job, um, there are still many people who should be getting AstraZeneca vaccine because it's what's available right now. And for those people who choose to wait for another vaccine, we don't actually have, as you mentioned, Karen, we don't have a guarantee of when they're going to get it. And in the meantime, um, there is that potential for another incursion of um, SARS-CoV-2 into Australia. So there's that potential risk of exposure. So really that cutoff was intended to just give people some guidance to make it easier to say, for this age group, it's very obvious that the benefits outweigh the risk. You should get vaccinated now. You, of course, don't have to. Um, but for people under this age group who are at less risk of really severe COVID, um, they really probably need to have that individual discussion with their GP to work out their preference. Great, thank you. Robert, have you got much more to add to that one? Um, well, as someone in their 50s, I put my name down three weeks ago for an AstraZeneca vaccine with the appropriate channel and I'm still waiting. Uh, so it's uh, variable, the response you get. Uh, my own GP couldn't supply and uh, the area I was directed to is taking their time. The risk of COVID in a situation where it is causing trouble in Australia is very different from the risk right now. And uh, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, I don't really have a risk of COVID at all. But what we don't know with winter coming, as they like to say, whether COVID may escape quarantine and particularly a variant of concern with high transmissibility and uh, cause trouble, which vaccination could have prevented. People in their 50s may only have a 1% risk of dying from COVID if they catch it in their 60s, two or more percent, four to eight percent in your 70s, more than 15% in your 80s. The risk of the syndrome of clotting uh, is a little bit higher under 50 than over 50. So there's a double whammy there. Uh, people under 50 um, are not being offered AstraZeneca routinely, but maybe able to have it. But that's just confusing the hell out of people, let's be honest. And uh, in simple terms, people will want to have uh, Pfizer if they're under 50 uh, and they won't understand if they aren't, they're not offered it. And people over 50 feel as if they're not being given a choice. Um, so you need to, as a professional, uh, listen to people's concerns first, provide them with as much information as you can. And the reassurance that... Uh, People uh, at the front line are happy to be vaccinated with AstraZeneca despite the tiny risk. Thank you, Robert. Um, there is a similar question wondering if anybody has over 50 has been, have there been any reported cases of TTS? The two reports in the New England Journal, one of them uh, was 11 patients under 50 and the other one had one patient who was 53 or 54 and then in the wider literature, there's been a few more reports of people in their 50s. So it's not exclusively under 50, it's just the risk is lower over 50. Great, thank you. That's really good to know. Suzanne, have you got anything to add to that as the nurse having to reassure the patients in general practice, knowing what it's like? I think it's really important to have, um, to give patients some perspective um, and to to, to validate their concerns, um, like Julie Leask so beautifully presented to us a couple of weeks ago, is hear them out, um, know that they have concerns. 
if you don't know the answer to their questions, help them find the right information. Uh, the Department of Health website is the source of truth on this stuff and there's resources coming out all the time to help consumers understand the landscape around all these vaccine questions. So I think, you know, that, that's what's important to people. People want to be heard. They want to have their concerns understood and they want to find the right information to, to answer those concerns. And nurses are a great conduit for that. We have great relationships with our patients and their families and our communities. So we're in a really good position um, to, to help steer people to accurate information um, so they, so they get, get the full picture and uh, not the social media version. Great answer. I like that. I always love it when they come in and say, I saw this on Facebook. Um, <laughs> that's, that's when you know you got, you're in trouble here. Um, so our next question um, that we've got is around the drawing up guidelines um, for the COVID vaccine. Um, so this is a little bit of a tricky one again because it is kind of different in every state and territory again. So they're wanting to know if beef if we're supposed to be following the ATAGI COVID training and using the drawing up needle and change to administer, or this particular um, person's talking about New South Wales health guidelines where you can use the same needle to draw up and administer um, and why there's a difference in procedure um, there. I would like to say federation is the answer to that. Um, so why there's a difference, but I'll hand over to um, Suzanne again to start. I'll go the opposite way around on this one. Yeah, look, um, I guess, you know, from the training to the training modules as well, we saw that um, there was a, a note in um, the aseptic technique drawing up procedure section that did say in some, um, some circumstances it's okay to um, use this drawing up needle to administer vaccine. Of course, there's some issues around that. Um, we know that in normal everyday circumstances, if we have the option, we use a clean, use a fresh needle. Um, I hope they're always clean. Um, then, and the reason that New South Wales have written that into their administration policy is around um, supply and demand of consumables for this rollout. Um, we always knew that lots of different parts of this rollout will be challenging and that will be one of them. Nurses are great at common sense and I would like hope that that would prevail in all of these um, different um, aspects and that you would be able to um, have that discussion with the clinicians that you're working with and, and make a decision on what works well for your practice and what is safe for you, what is safe for your patients and what is safe for your colleagues. Regardless of whether you use the drawing up needle to administer the vaccine or you change it, the most important thing here is um, infection prevention and control and minimising those risks. So the aseptic technique, regardless of which needle you're using, that is the most critical thing here. And that is where we minimise um, some of those risks associated with using a multi-dose vial. Kedeke or Robert might be able to give some yeah. science behind some of that decision making with the needle changes. It was really just the, the reason that Atagi um, recommended initially a, a preference for using a separate needle was just the theoretical concern that you could be coating the needle in the vaccine when you're drawing it up and then therefore depositing it into subcutaneous tissues and that might cause 
uh, more irritation. So I don't know if Robert knows if there's um, any evidence to back that up, but um, that was the concern. Um, however, ATAGI made it clear in their advice to government that both options are acceptable. And in fact, I think in the Pfizer materials, they do recommend or they describe using the same needle to draw up and administer. Um, so they're both acceptable options and there is actually going to be a resource coming out with a clear step-by-step -step instructions for those two options, as well as the third option, which is using the same drawing up needle to prepare multiple doses if you're going to be doing it, you know, for six patients who are all lined up, ready to be vaccinated. Um, but that was really the main concern um, for that decision. Karen, anything to add to that from your experience? Um, I would just add that during the swine flu epidemic, we used multi-dose vials. It was a fast and efficient way to get large amounts of vaccines out um, and into practices to give to people, into programs to give to people, and much easier to transport. There's a delay when you have to make single dose um, doses of medication in syringes, and, uh, and we don't have the time at the moment to do that. Probably we'll catch up and they will come like the flu shots in individual syringes. But right now, this is the most efficient way to get to a lot of people in a hurry. Awesome. Thanks, Karen. So the next question is a slightly different tact and certainly a really great one, actually, is that um, somebody's had a client today who was having surgery next week and has heard that some anaesthetists are not keen to do surgery one week after the vaccine. Um, called the specialist room and they advised that they wouldn't do for one month. Has anybody else come across this? And I think this is a really great question because people still need to have surgery as usual. <laughs> so um, trying to understand if there's any guidelines around, um, yeah, having the vaccine and having surgery in between and any reasonings as to why specialists might not be doing that. Um, the risk of the thrombotic condition occurs between four and 20 days after vaccination with AstraZeneca and probably not with the mRNA vaccines, uh, but maybe with Janssen, we're still learning about that. So to look at a risk that is one in 200,000 and say, oh, you might get clotting while we're giving you a GA is not really logical. And the tiny risk shouldn't preclude people from having surgery in my opinion, I'm not aware of any guidelines, but that's just my logic. I agree. And there are no, there's no ATAGI guidance on this, um, but um, my advice would be, and I don't know if Robert, if you would agree, um, is just to uh, avoid surgery in the, either on the same day or immediately after when you'd expect you might have a fever and be really unwell and that might interfere with your post-operative course. But, you know, it's really only just that concomitant administration that you try to avoid. So the other question we've been asked is around the consumables for the COVID vaccine and people using just the regular ordinary um, syringes rather than the space-saving one mil or three mil ones. Um, so is, is there any yes or no to that particular answer? Um, should they be waiting or is it okay to just be drawing up using the regular ones? I can um, give some comment on this, and it's a supply issue. A lot of goods are manufactured overseas and we have to wait for them to arrive, and there's a huge demand worldwide. 
So I think we just need to use what we've got available. The government was hoping to be able to supply us with um, a lot of consumables, but, you know, we're just waiting for stock to arrive and then that will come out after that. I would also add that um, the cost of a syringe and a needle is very, very small. We're talking a few cents. So if it's a cost issue, I would be wanting to talk to who is complaining about it being a cost issue when they're actually getting a Medicare rebate to cover the service. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Karen. Um, so there's a um, there's also another one around um, some drawing up around getting 11 doses from each vial, um, if there's been any um, others who have experienced similar similar things around getting more than they maybe thought they would be, but <laughs> rather than wastage of dosage. Um, I think so. It's actually kind of links to the previous question. If they're, if they're talking about the 10-dose AstraZeneca vials and they are using exclusively low-dead space equipment, um, then you are actually potentially able to get an extra dose out. Um, and given that's not a diluted vaccine, I think that would be reasonable because you know that what you're getting is the same you know, potency or concentration as every other dose. Um, similarly with Pfizer, we know that people are able to get out up to seven doses um, if they're using the low dead space products. Uh, but if you don't have those products, you can absolutely still use standard needles and syringes. You may just only get five doses for the Pfizer vaccine and the 10 doses for AstraZeneca. They contain that extra product so that you can use the standard equipment. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so we've had a question around somebody who has genetic thrombocytopenia um, and what to do with those patients. Um, they're wondering if they should be referred to specialists or where should they be going to? Should they be going to a hospital to have their jab? What, what would the advice be from the panel there? I think um, for anybody that's um, complicated and has a history that, um, that points to needing further investigation and assessment before having the vaccine, um, we have specialist immunisation services in every um, jurisdiction and you can access them from the APNACOVA page. You can access those from NCs and they're a wonderful resource to get specialist individualised advice for patients with complications. So that's um, always a port of call, as is um, in some cases allergists and immunologists for people who have those complicated history of um, you know, allergies to components of vaccine, they're also an option there. So, um, you know, as with giving any medication, if you as a nurse are not convinced that um, that's a safe thing to do and you need to seek further advice on it, then absolutely do it. Call a halt and seek that further advice. That would be where I would stand on that. Awesome. Thanks, Suzanne, because I've got another one, which is a sort of similar, which they're under 50. They've previously had a PE um, and saying, would you definitely recommend Pfizer as opposed to AZ? Um, again, I think that goes back to what Suzanne was saying and seeking advice for. Well, that yeah. that one's that one's a little bit different. Um, um, our two um, scientists might be able to flesh that one out a bit better. My understanding was that a history of previous thrombotic events didn't necessarily point towards a higher risk of what we're seeing um, now with these two cases um, in Australia and the, and the few overseas as well, um, it, that it was a different thing altogether. But um, some science on that. 
Look, there's a lot of uncertainty still, and uh, what Suzanne says is uh, wise and important. Uh, we are in a position where, to the best of our knowledge, the syndrome is occurring in people without a prior history of prothrombotic events, be they due to the oral contraceptive pill or due to uh, factor V Leiden or one of the other many other, you know, inborn errors of, uh, of clotting. So the best advice people seem to have right now is that uh, they are separate conditions and therefore can be treated separately. Um, but um, I think, as I said earlier, I think we're going to learn a lot in the next few weeks and months. Awesome. Thank you. Anything else to add to that, Kitaki? Um, yeah, the only thing to add is the countries that have ex used AstraZeneca vaccine extensively haven't seen a rise in any other type of thromboembolic event. That's the basis on which they've said they don't seem to be linked and this seems to be a completely different pathophysiology. And then again, putting it all into the context of a pandemic and you know, risk-benefit assessment. Um, a, a lot of people who have had a history of a DVT in the past, but they're in the eligible age group, probably would still be wise to vaccinate. Um, but I completely agree. It's very sensible to call the immunisation specialist service, uh, especially now when there's really not a lot of information, but um, provider resources are being developed that will help um, nurses and GPs to have those conversations as well, because we know how common things like DVT are. Awesome. Thank you. Um, along a slightly different line is around patients are asking if they can have pathology after the vaccine. Uh, if so, how long should they wait, if at all, post-pathology, uh, post-vaccine to have any path done just in case it increases their um, blood or, you know, changes their blood test results that they're going to get done? I guess it depends on what they're getting tested. Like if they're getting uh, inflammatory markers or a white blood cell count or, you know, cortisol, maybe that would be high the day after vaccination. Things that fever can push up would be pushed up. So it would be really dependent on the test. But I think generally speaking, um, the vast majority of things would not be affected by having a vaccine. And I, I would add that in well people, it probably should be discouraged. It's a really expensive exercise um, and we, the taxpayer, will pay for that. And there are a lot of unnecessary blood tests that are done already. And, yeah, unless it's really indicated for health issues, I, yeah, I wouldn't actually be encouraging that. Thank you. So consensus is to wait maybe a little bit until they've had it done. Yeah, is and, this, so yeah. are they talking about you know, people who are meant to be having bloods for something and they... Okay. Yeah, yeah. So any particular bloods that they might have been ordered either before the COVID test or their jutes, their sort of annual cholesterol, that kind of thing that they might be getting checked um, to have done. But as far as we're aware, we're, there's no particular guidelines at the moment around how long you should be waiting um, to have bloods after you've had the test done for. So maybe if that's something we can look into further potentially, if there's any further recommendations that might be able to be brought up. Um, that sounds good that. to me. Uh, but I would also say that some people are probably thinking uh, differently. They're thinking, um, or might there be blood tests that I can have to uh, mitigate or reduce my risk from complications of vaccination? And uh, we don't have any of those blood tests available at the moment. And I think the point of the question was uh, routine blood tests, not uh, special blood tests. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so we've had um, just some general questions around wastage, um, around vaccine wastage um, and what to do if anybody else has come across that. So um, are you guys happy to answer that one around what's what's the protocol for wastage? Um, it depends on the circumstances, what the protocol is. It depend, depends where you're working and um, under which jurisdiction. We, look, APNA has had some reports around nurses being concerned with um, some wastage of vaccines. And we're in a great position um, with having um, Karen sit on quite a few um, government meetings to be able to feed that back that information. So um, these, we know that nurses are concerned around a range of things and that's why stuff like the pulse check survey is really important. Um, but uh, yes, we're aware that nurses have concerns around um, wastage of vaccine. There's been some um, issues with end of day stock and end of week stock and also some issues around um, suitable delivery and where stuff's been left and and some mix-ups with addresses we know that these things are happening um, we can't change it but we can help report it and we can help um, get the information that you give us to government and we will continue to do that so um, for anything if you want to do details around any of that stuff um, please email the nurse support line and attention it to me and um, it's something that I get the privilege of um, running through with Karen every week and um, and she has the opportunity to feed that up to government. Awesome thank you Suzanne. Yes very common question that we've been getting through the nurse support line. So this next question is around dosage timing. Um, there's a few different questions and similar things to this. So I'll go through one at a time. So the first one is around, is it better to give the second dose a week or two early, i.e. 10 or 11 weeks after dose one, or later 13 or 14 weeks if the patient can't return? And the second part, to that around the similar question is what's the effect on immunity if the second dose of AstraZeneca is delayed longer than 12 weeks? Is there a maximum time to have second dose? So looking at potency of second doses. I'm happy to take those couple of questions. Briefly, um, the studies with AstraZeneca, uh, which have recommended three months are actually based on data which shows that even at 10 or 11 weeks, the protection is less than it is at 12 or 13 or 14 weeks. So that's important to know. So the longer, the better. And so if it's delayed till 14 or 15 weeks, you'll get good protection still. If you can't get a second dose in because they're going somewhere at the 12-week mark, then of course give it at the 11-week mark and be practical. I'll just add that there is no um, upper window for the second dose. So we do know that one dose provides reasonable or some protection up until that 12-week point because that's been measured. Um, but we don't know exactly how long that single dose will provide protection. So if it's delayed for months and months, it just means that the person might be more vulnerable if that protection from the first dose wears off. But if you get the second dose six months later, you still don't have to repeat the course or get a third dose. Awesome. Great to know. Nobody likes getting jabbed more than they need to be. Um, so the next question is around um, drawing up of the AZ vaccine. Um, can it be kept at room temperature for six hours or is it to be used and given within one hour? So this is 
something that's been coming through as a very common question through our nurse support line for sure. So, um, Kataki, do you want to answer that one? Um, yeah, so I think the six-hour um, guideline comes from AstraZeneca itself, which said that their product is stable um, in a syringe for six hours, but Atagi recommended a one-hour window more out of a concern of the potential for contamination and infection control. Um, so that's the reason they recommended. So ideally it would be within that one-hour window, but we know that it's not like the vaccine will become unviable after two hours. You just, the longer you leave it potentially the higher the risk for contamination. And it's worth noting there's no preservative in this vaccine. Good to know. Thank you. And also obviously leaving something out on a bench and who knows who drew it up, where, when and how um, sometimes. So Suzanne or Karen, have you got anything to add to that? I guess with um, drawing up multiple doses at once, um, there's a labelling technique for that. Um, so the person drawing up needs to label those um, syringes and date and time them to make sure we work um, by the guidelines or as close to as, as humanly possible without, you know, um, creating more vaccine wastage. So that's really important is um, labelling your vials, labelling the syringes if you're drawing up a few of them at a time and going to use them over the next hour um, or ideally the next hour and, um and following the guidelines for aseptic technique and, and how you store those. So we also, um, like Katie said, these vaccines don't have a preservative. Um, we also know they're potentially sensitive to UV light, sunlight or fluorescent light. Um, so that's other things to think about um, once doses are drawn up and out of the vial and out of the box and out of the fridge. Oh. I would just add too that all of the guidelines, as they're changed, drop straight into either Susan or my inbox. And then we put them, well, I don't personally, but the team put them up on the website so you can access them. So you can be assured that as soon as information comes through, we put it somewhere where you can access it. Awesome. Now, I was going to say a similar one I found in here is around um, once you've drawn it up into a syringe, can it be stored in the fridge um, for two to eight degrees for 48 hours, same as the guidelines for an open vial I don't, re I don't recall seeing a guideline on, um, especially especially not for, for having it in a syringe in any circumstances longer than the six hours. I, I felt like that was the kind of maximum um, based on um, thermostability data. Uh, yeah, so uh, um, Kataki's very quick on the keyboard there. So um, if Just there found, is, yeah. so it she's is found it, great. At fridge temperature if pre-drawn. Awesome. So six hours pre-drawn in fridge. Perfect. Thank you. That's amazing. Um, all righty. So this is um, probably for Suzanne and Karen. <laughs> this is a very common question again. Um, are doctors meant to write progress notes even when they're not administering the vaccines but are in the clinic where the nurse, nurse immunizer, has administered and written notes on these patients? And this will be, I'm guessing, in relation to the MBS guidelines um, around wow. this. So. I'm very happy to take that because I had some input into the MBS item. Um, the answer would be then if the doctor has, under his clinical uh, governance responsibility, handed that to you as a registered nurse, you make the notes. And um, it, <clears throat> it says there that the, that 
in those guidelines that the nurse can um, can take on that role and that the doctor doesn't necessarily have to see the patient, but certainly has to be on site, has to have done the course, uh, is available for any uh, questions or issues. But if the nurse is giving the vaccine, and certainly if it's um, a lot of us out there are accredited immunizers, it's the same procedure and record to air. Awesome, thank you. Suzanne? I guess um, the question that I've had a fair bit around this has been whether or not nurses needed a medical order in the patient's chart. So, um, again, thanks to um, all our different jurisdictions having slightly different rules, um, there, there is some differences between the states and territories. So you do actually need to look at um, the, the scope that you're allowed to work to under your Poisons Act and your jurisdiction. And, again, that stuff is in each jurisdiction's box on our webpage. But I would say this, is that um, when in doubt, use the mechanisms that are available to you to have standing orders put in place. So um, they're recognised. Um, Western Australia and South Australia have great systems for this and you can click on the boxes for Western Australia and South Australia and have a look at how they do it. Um, and there's no reason why, um, you know, in other jurisdictions you can't utilising utilise standing orders um, as nurses administering vaccine if, if that is the concern about making notations in, in patients' charts. Um, that would help solve solve that one. Um, again, a GP just needs to be available to you should you have concerns or should the you know, patient have additional concerns that you're not able to deal with during the suitability assessment for the vaccine. Absolutely. I'm always going back to the legal framework of if it's not written down, did it even happen? Um, if anything happened post that COVID interaction, you know, if, if there's nothing in the notes, there needs to be um, something for them to fall back on if the patient came back and wanted to sue them or anything like that. Um, as soon as you bring that word up, um, then they might start writing some notes in there. Um, yeah. But, yeah. As, as nurses, if you're giving the medication, you need to make the notation. That's your job. That's your responsibility. Um, and, and you need to be doing that at the time of encounter. Um, most practice software lets you um, upload to air automatically. There are some exceptions to that and there is a window to upload to air within 24 hours of, of vaccination. So if that's not something that happens uh, automatically from your practice software, there's other mechanisms for that and that's okay. But administering a medication, if you gave it, you did it, it's your job to document it. Awesome. Anyone else have anything to add to that? Well, that's probably about, <laughs> about it. Um, Alrighty, so we've got um, another question around eligibility for the vaccines. So if you're under 50 uh, working in GP, frontline worker, are they entitled to Pfizer at the hub or do they have to wait? Um, that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> Suzanne or? Yeah, they're entitled to it at the hub. Karen, I'll let you give well, the detail. I thought, well, maybe we need, we need an umpire because I thought that um, general practice is in the phase 1B rollout and which means that there um, would be in the AstraZeneca um, group, <laughs> up change on Monday, um, but the GPs or anyone going into aged care was eligible for the 1A 
um, vaccine because they were going into vulnerable um, a vulnerable um, community um, practice. So that's my understanding. I think it's changed, though, in light of this new recommendation um, that the government will reallocate 1B healthcare workers under 50 to receive Pfizer, but the logistics of that haven't been worked out yet. Um, so we don't actually have the process yet for how it'll be. But, but that's exactly why I presume they're having all these um, meetings with each jurisdiction to work that out. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, because there was a question also similar it's asking if they're going to bring forward the group 2A for those over 50 to 70 um, as well in light of the changes. So we're sort of in progress with that at the moment. Um, so another one that's around labelling of um, syringes, if they need to be labelling every syringe that they uh, draw up, from the one diet, from the one vial, sorry, um, if they're going to be administered in the hour, do they still have to be labelled um, for each syringe? Um, personally, I think they should because if the first patient has anaphylaxis and then you're all caught up, everybody's, you know, looking after them or, you know, something else happens, a security event or something, you know, anything could happen and then you have to go back and see do you have viable doses left or not. And you have to follow the protocol. And if the protocol says that you have to label those syringes, that's what you do. Because, again, as Kataki said, if something happens, what's your comeback? So if you followed the protocol, um, then you're covered. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say hopefully most clinics maybe have a bit of a process um, for getting these kind of um, getting these labels and everything all set up in a row and, you know, ready to go, hopefully, um, unless, Suzanne, if you've come across any particular tips from the um, APNA Facebook group or anything from others who've got um, a sort of general process set up for labelling. My, um, my advice is if you, if you haven't got something in place or, or you think what you do have in place isn't working as well as it should, is talk to your PHN. A lot of the PHNs are actually helping with resourcing some of this stuff um, uh, and designing resources and getting them out there to, to practices or um, doing templates so you can print off labels and that kind of stuff if they're in short supply. Um, so some of some of the kind of, I guess, the, the admin-y paperworky bits behind um, the actual aseptic drawer and the, and the, and the labels and also, there's um, some of the PHNs are doing um, the uh, cards for patients that tell them when their next dose is due and those kinds of resources. So if you're stuck for that and, you, and you're not getting what you need from um, the department's website, from the DOH website, um, I would talk to your local PHN because there's lots of great work um, going on in that space to help nurses um, make this thing work efficiently. Definitely. Thank you. Um, Anna different, slightly different tacts. So um, nurse immunisers who don't need GPs directly involved in pre-screening, consent and administration, should they be seeking clarity around any potential legal ramifications if somebody develops a clot post-AZ vaccine? Because this is being brought up in their media um, and some from some of the nurses' personal experiences where the GPs are worried about legal ramifications of that, um, yeah, around that. So should nurse immunisers also be seeking clarity for that as well 
or is that not something that they necessarily have to worry about? Um, I, I'm happy to make some comment on that. There was a scare a few weeks ago where um, a large um, professional indemnity insurer was trying to, tact how can I tactfully say, squeeze additional money for um, cover for giving the COVID vaccine from the government and then um, and threatening not to cover nurse immunisers uh, for the COVID vaccine. That was put to rest and they were told, no, it should be covered. Our insurer has sent a message and probably most of you would have got it in, the, in your inboxes that, um, that they'll cover you uh, as part of your um, pr current protection uh, in, with professional indemnity insurance. There's also been a few issues in the media. The College of GPs have also received some um, or have been have concerns about whether their members are covered and I saw um, some correspondence from Avant in the last couple of days that are reassuring GPs that they're covered. Awesome so I guess in terms of our the APNA insurance that um, APNA provides you're covered as long as it's your it's in your normal scope of practice um, to do so giving immunisations and everything as such. Um, Suzanne, did you want to add anything more to that around that particular question of insurance as we've been getting a few, few of those through the nurse support line too? Um, yeah, yeah, we uh, actually went back to our insurer on behalf of members to, to confirm that and we have sent out um, to all our nurses who are insured um, through APNA reassurance on that. I guess this specific question, though, was a, taken it to that extra little step around, did they have to, did um, immunisers have to make more inquiries um, for this, you know, rare clotting situation? So at the moment, my understanding is um, no. Again, if you're working within your scope of practice. Now, working within your scope of practice includes doing the mandatory training. It also includes actually keeping up to date with the changes in recommendations from bodies like ATAGI and what we should be doing. There's some new information um, available and a reformatted consent um, document that goes through lots and lots of information, lots of questions and checklists that you should be asking um, people before you vaccinate them. Um, so that's a great resource. There's actually also a guide on informed consent um, by Tuggy as well. So if this is an area where you feel you might not be quite on top of all the legal stuff, then there's resources there to help you. And if you can't find what you need, get onto us on the nurse support line and we will help you. Um, NCS is also great at finding resources for people as well. So they have helped us too. So um, yeah, keep current with the changes. Um, that's important to um, declare that you're, that you're working within your scope of practice and therefore to keep your coverage current with your um, professional indemnity insurer. Awesome. Thanks, Suzanne. Um, now, this might be a question for you, Robert, um, around the patients, if they need to wait for a certain time to have the COVID vaccine after having any injection like the prolia or B12, because there are a lot of patients who have their regular um, injections or testosterone injections, depending on, you know, who, where, what, when. Um, do you know, are you aware of any particular timelines 
in between vaccination and regular injections such as those? Well, I'm not aware of particular guidelines for steroid or other examples that you just mentioned. Um, uh, the, the logic is to separate them by at least two or three days so you know if there's a side effect where it's coming from. Uh, in regard to flu vaccination, there is some clear guideline, uh, which is that uh, if you've had a flu vaccine, you wait two weeks before you have COVID. But given that COVID is the uh, larger threat by way of risk of disease or um, death, um, uh, if COVID is likely to be given in the next two weeks, then go for that. And once you've had that, uh, you can wait a minimum of two weeks and then have your flu jab. Um, obviously, we in primary care try to give flu and pneumo jabs together if both are appropriate and indicated, um, and even a, a, a zoster vaccine as well at the same time. But until we have the good data, it's not that there's a problem with giving COVID and flu vaccine at the same time. It's just that there isn't the good data to support the safety of giving them together. And then some people also point to, well, you don't know which is causing a side effect if you get it. While I'm at it, um, a lot of people talk about their symptoms on the day of vaccination with a COVID vaccine. And I think it's important to realize that you're probably more likely to get a sore arm the day after and a fever uh, and muscle ache and headache. Uh, and then that uh, should uh, settle down within two or three days. Um, but to, um, to be reassured by you know, minimal effects within the first couple of hours is to miss the fact that the studies show that most of the side effects start the day after. Kataki, have you got anything to add to that? Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with, um, exactly that the ideally you wouldn't want to have, um, especially a new medication on the same day, just in case you have a reaction, you don't know what caused it. Um, but there's also a very small group of patients who might be getting regular infusions for immune suppressing drugs. And so those patients should check with their specialist when would be the best time to get vaccinated. And that's because theoretically, if they get vaccinated two weeks after or right in between their you know, monthly infusion doses, maybe they could have a better immune response um, if they're taking immune suppressing drugs. But that's a bit different from polio or B12 injections, but they would tend to go and actually get a you know, four hour infusion of this drug. Um, Awesome, thank you. Um, so something I think a lot of us can relate to is how can we build confidence in the vaccine rollout amongst the community? Because this is something that the nurses' role is vital to. So um, yes, what's the best how what's the best way to do that? It's tough at the moment because there's so much adverse um, media around just around the rollout but I think it's it's the same sort of um, information you would give for people who with the flu vaccine <clears throat> I think in in that it's the best protection we've got there's been hundreds of millions of doses of this given all around the world and the safety profile certainly for the vaccines we have here yes there's been a couple of clotting issues but on the whole they're really safe vaccines and um, that people can be reassured in that the millions of people before them um, now have a level of protection for COVID and we don't have a medication that can cure it there's no Tamiflu 
that um, might shorten your symptoms. There's no guarantee um, that any of the treatments at the moment is going to help other than vaccine and uh, protection and immunity. And, you know, and then you know, a, a, as we've done in the beautiful Julie West has done, you just talk to them through their concerns. Um, I, I, I find the term validate people's concerns ambiguous because people's concerns are important and should be listened to. But to validate them is almost to agree with them. And I think that's a dangerous word. I think it is important to really listen and to respond and to provide information uh, and empathy, uh, not just information. I think to provide personal examples helps too. And uh, if you can speak to your own family, that I find uh, reassuring to people. They think, oh, well, if it's good enough for them, it could be good enough for me too. Uh, reassurance um, from uh, the latest information is good. Pointing to websites, pointing to question and answer, pamphlets, whatever that we can to prepare people before they come and uh, are part of the sausage factory of doctors and nurses trying to vaccinate. Uh, to prepare them well ahead is, is I think, important too. Um, I think it's a really important task. I think nurses take the lead um, in so many ways uh, with, um, uh, with the uh, maintenance and the improvement of confidence in vaccination. Yeah, definitely. Vaccine hesitancy is a huge, huge topic. Um, certainly we could spend three hours on it. <laughs> Well, we did, Beck, um, we, we, we did, Beck, um, we did a webinar around this um, with the wonderful Julie Leesk and it was recorded um, and it's available in podcast format or you can watch it from our website to um, see the slides. So if you missed that or you feel like you want to revisit it, um, then that's available. And also um, in the resources section on the COVID page um, is a information um, booklet that she co-authored around communication and vaccine hesitancy and some great tips and tricks. So there's a couple of resources there for you. If you need more, let us know and we'll point you in the right direction. Awesome. Thank you. That's a great resource. I was going to say final, final question. It's just about INRs. Can you give the AZ to people whose INR is over three when that's their tar target INR? Because that's something that's um, come up a fair bit and fairly common in GP land, especially um, around, yeah, figuring out INRs with the AZ vaccine? My understanding is, yes, that there's an increased risk of bleeding um, with people on anticoagulants and you need to tell them that and that's part of informed consent. Um, if you have a patient um, on warfarin who is not stable or for some other reason you um are suspicious that their INR might be higher than target, um, then uh, stop the procedure, do an INR and check that first and, and bounce it off your GP. That's what a supervising GP is there for in um, a GP practice um, vaccination clinic. Um, it, it is a little bit hard because the guidelines, I know the guideline does say um, the kind of upper limit for an INR for an injection is three, but we do have that handful of patients who for whatever complicated medical reason, um, you know, specialists that run their INRs between 2.5 and 3.5. So yes, it's tricky. And again, though, if, if you're unsure and you're not confident, then use the specialist um, immunisation clinics, you know, re refer up and get more advice if you need to. Um, Kediki, I don't know if you want to add to that. 
Um, yeah, I agree with you. I really wouldn't want to delay that person's chance of getting a COVID vaccine, especially if it's someone who's got a mechanical heart valve and, um, you know, you don't want to send them away for a, a couple of weeks if, if there's a chance that they won't come back or get their vaccine, um, but it would potentially increase their risk of bleeding. So there is a bit of advice in the immunisation handbook about how to minimise that risk, such as firm pressure on the site for a full two minutes um, after vaccination. And as you said, just let them know that there is that potential increased risk of a haematoma, but you'd expect the vaccine to be effective. Great. Thank you. I'll hand back to Mitch. Thanks, Mitch. Lovely. Thank you very much, everyone. That was fantastic. I, um, I really learned a lot out of that. So thank you very much to our panel this evening. Um, thank you to Dr. Kedeki Sharma um, and Professor Robert Boy. Karen Booth, Suzanne Blackaby, and thank you to Rebecca Cox for asking all the, all the tricky questions. And thank you everyone for, for everyone's questions this evening. We got through as many as we could in the allotted time um, and there's still a lot more to go, but um, thank you very much for everyone who's joined us this evening. Uh, a quick little summary, uh, the COVID web, uh, the webpage that um, Suzanne's been talking about throughout um, is accessed via the main page of the, um, the APNA website. So please click through to that. Um, as I said, this will be a, this recording will be available in Nursing Australia in the next couple of days. Um, you feel free to listen on any um, podcast li listening app, or you can visit the APNA website and listen through there. Uh, well, we really appreciate every, everyone's time this evening, and thank you very much um, for joining us. Um, we will see you soon, and um, uh, thank you, everyone. Have a lo have a lovely night. Nurses can keep up to date with the latest on the COVID vaccine rollout by subscribing to the Connect. There's a link in the show notes. Who has the time to wade through every piece of healthcare news? Primary healthcare nurses certainly don't. Fear not. APNA's weekly Connect e-newsletter condenses key industry news into digestible content while serving up a feast of useful resources. Stay in the know and save time. Subscribe for free at www.apna.asn.au. This podcast is brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association, and is only made possible by our members. Join today. Google APNA membership. APNA is partners with the Australian Digital Health Agency to transform how we use digital health and practice. This is a really exciting initiative. It's about embracing technology head on and bringing our colleagues along for the ride, ensuring digital platforms like My Health Record are utilised to their full extent. I sat down with APNA's John Hardgrove and two of our members and Nurse Transformers, Tammy and Marianne, as they discuss their roles in adopting digital health and in creating digital champions. When you hear the term digital health, what, what does that mean for you? What does that mean to you? For me, uh, digital health is about that immediacy of having information available um, and that ease of access to that information, which is so important. Like Marianne said, you've got your patients who are seeing other clinicians, other specialists, going elsewhere for different diagnostic tests. Being able to access that quickly and easily in a general practice is it's gold, it's gold dust, it's just so valuable and the whole experience for the patient is better because of that. You've got that information at your fingertips and, um, yeah, so I think when I think of digital health, two words I think of immediately are accessibility and um, an ease of getting that information just yeah, whenever, wherever, however, you, you can be connected and it's available for you. John, could you just uh, provide us an overview today of APNA's Nurse Transformers project and, and what does that entail? Yeah, absolutely. 
So the Nurse Transformers project is actually a pilot initiative that we're undertaking in partnership with the Australian Digital Health Agency. And the whole goal is to recruit a bunch of nurses that are digital champions, basically spreading their knowledge of digital health tools and technologies to other health professionals. So this is one of the ways that the agency is looking to make sure that digital health is on the forefront. They obviously provide a lot of training through online courses and through their own education team. But this one was a way that, because we know that nurses do love to learn from other nurses, this is a way that we can make sure that's happening in terms of uh, digital health. So the nurses in this program basically undergo some digital health technology training, and they're also provided with some presentation skills training so that they're making sure um, they have the ability to pass their knowledge on to others in the most effective and engaging ways. So it's not just about upskilling people with digital health skills, but it's also about upskilling them with presentation skills so that they can pass that knowledge on to others in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. So Marianne, how would you describe your role as a nurse transformer? And, and moreover, what's the greatest challenge that you foresee with this project? Um, well, I have... Jokingly, I've, I have been saying to people that Nurse Transformer comes with a cape. I feel like it should come with a cape. <laughs> um, I see the role of Nurse Transformer as, um, you know, it's an education role and it, it's about that, as John said, that peer-to-peer -peer learning with an extra cape thrown in. Um, and and what, it, what it means to me is, I, like, I've been involved with the digital health um the the when it was called PCEHR the my health record we've been involved for quite some time and and it's been frustrating because you know you look at it and it hasn't been very useful five years ago because you know it was just being rolled out but now it's actually becoming really useful and I'm really excited about it because I'm such a nerd and so <laughs> it's one of those things that you want to share it with people you want to go oh yeah but you can do that it's much easier if you do this and and so being able to share that with others you know, other practitioners, other nurses is, you know, it's a really good thing. And that's what I see my role as in the Nurse Transformer. I see it as someone who's, you know, sharing this enthusiasm for digital health and why it's a good idea and how, and not that it's a good idea, but how it's going to make your life easier because, you know, there's a lot of um, barriers in general practice. And if there's something we can do to make things a bit easier, then I'm all for it. Just on that, you touched on it, barriers uh, in, in general practice, um, but broadly, I guess, resistance to new pro projects such as this um, would be pretty commonplace in your role. So uh, my question for you is, um, how, how, do you, uh, how do you adapt to that or how do you address that um, resistance when you come up against it? How, how do you bring your colleagues on board? I think just your general enthusiasm, sort of saying, you know, and then when people have questions actually, there is a better way to do that. We can do it this way, you know, oh, I can't find this other thing. Have you tried this? You know, I think it's just generally, um, you know, I think one of the biggest barriers is definitely resistance from people because they tried it five years ago or they tried it two years ago and there was no information on it. So I think that's the biggest barrier that we have to overcome is just educating people that, yeah, that was then, this is now. So, Tammy, what about when teaching your other colleagues? Do you have any tips and tricks for uh, bringing other nurses on board or engaging them in this process? Yeah, I, look, I really like 
um, sharing knowledge with other nurses. Um, I find nurses are really receptive by and large. I, I work with two fantastic other nurses and the learning opportunities we've had has been amazing. If you can um, find a little hook to get people in, I think really helps. And a big one is this is going to save you so much time. It's going to make your job so much easier and quicker and ultimately your patient is going to receive a better outcome. So peer-to-peer um, -peer learning is great. Um, you can learn so much from your co-workers. I think organisations really need to get on board with that. Um, it's a great opportunity for learning. Um, I think the best thing is sitting down and, at, at your computer terminal and actually just, you know, someone beside you and, and, and showing them, let me show you, what, how quick and easy this is to access this information. And if I could go back to you, Marianne, uh, how do you envisage the Nurse Transformers project, program, project, sorry, the Nurse Transformers program in uh, helping nurses of the future? So how will the program help nurses of the future? Um, I think normalising um, the digital health record and, and showing that it's, you know, something that nurses have a role in I think um, I think that's going to help you know nurses of the future you know knowing that you know we are part of the, the the general practice team and that we can access um, you know digital health that we can help you know be part of the you know the the whole team that is around patient centered care so I think um, yeah, I think it helps with that. Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. So this episode's wellness segment looks at being an effective communicator, a more effective communicator, a better presenter. And as healthcare professionals, really good communication or great communication really is paramount. On the daily, we communicate with colleagues, patients, those around us, our families. Recently, leadership consultant Steve Ferns dropped in to the APNA office via Zoom, armed with a few tips on acing effective communication for our team. John Hargrove has more. Yeah, well, look, I think first I'd just say, I think we're all really grateful to have you here today, Steve, because in our roles, um, both as nurses and some of us who aren't nurses, um, we're all in the practice of giving presentations. And a lot of the time these days that's happening over Zoom and in a setting just like this, but there's a bunch of um, really fundamental skills I think we'd all love to gain that can take you, know, you into a good presentation in person or translating those into an online setting is probably where a lot of us are finding that challenge here at APNA as we've transitioned a lot of our face-to-face -face programs into online programs. So um, I think it, what, you know, it's really great that we've got you here today to be able to just pass on to us some of the best do's and don'ts and, you know, some of the fundamental skills that you use on a day-to-day -day basis. I just wanted to say welcome. Um, really honour you for taking, you know, two hours out. I know some of you might be on lunch breaks, other things happening. And, and my key goal by the end of our session together is we become a way being more effective as communicators. So presenting with impact. Because I believe with presenting or communicating, we can present or we could communicate. The question is, are we having impact? And then it becomes, what sort of impact do we even want to have? There's a quote I always like from Stephen Covey. Uh, my granddad gave me seven habits of highly effective people when I was about 16. So Steve version 1.6, and I love this. It means begin with the end in mind. We become way more intentional. So if, as Margaret was saying, is she presenting for 10 minutes or 20 minutes? 
You said she has a tendency to talk. That's great. It's good to be able to talk. But what is the end result she wants to happen? So, so easily we could get sidetracked. Someone's just mentioned a comment or put in the chat box about vodka, and we could go off on a side note talking about that. But we want to be intentional. So when we really clarify what being effective is, it means we've got to have our target. So begin with the end in mind. What would our bullseye be? What would be our end result? Otherwise, we're just doing stuff. And as you can see with all those arrows, here's just a visual. I, I have not a load of text there. It's just as you're looking at that, I know you're thinking and representing what does that mean? So we could do a lot of things. So you could say in theory, great, we've shot 20 arrows, but not one hit the target. Wouldn't it be better to slow down a little bit and think about what are the big three things I want to talk about today and have them all hit the target? So back to that bigger picture idea, begin with the end in mind. You know, what would make this really valuable for you? Even if we're not the most experienced or the subject matter expert, what are we bringing to it? I know there are more people that know more about presenting than me. But if they can't deliver it in an engaging way, it doesn't matter. They could even be textbook. They could tell you how to present, but yet they don't have the ability. Let me say that again. They could talk to you about it, but they don't really have the ability. So that's why I love some of the comments. You've seen me role model some of the things as well. So even if I didn't talk about it, you're feeling it coming through. So it's really important. We don't need to be the SME all the time. We've got to go, what's the intention of our session? Just make sure we share that and they can see why. Reminds me of a time, I'm not a subject matter expert on note-taking, but I once ran a session on note-taking for a group of PAs and EAs. But I was upfront with them. I don't even know how to speed type or take shorthand. But what I do know is about how to communicate. What I do know about is holding people accountable to a meeting agenda, challenge people for action items, who does what by when. And if you could do that, you will be really effective in a team meeting. Suddenly I'd engage all those EAs and PAs because they go, wow, I can see how this person can add value to me. It's all about value. The moment you help someone add value. The biggest one to calm our nerves is to visualize what we're doing. So, and visualize it going well. So you can imagine we're starting our intro. I visualize doing a circle, putting the two S's, saying structure and spontaneity. I visualized it. So when I'm doing it, I'm going to feel relaxed when I'm doing it because it's like the second time I'm doing it. So visualize key bits. I'd also visualize drawing intro body conclusion around it. Now, now I only need to visualize it. But if I was doing it for the first time, you'd probably sketch that out seeing how it's gonna fit on the flip chart. Will they still see it on Zoom? The biggest one for Calm is visualizing success. I'm already visualizing you all in a moment coming off mute and giving me a little ripple around the applause. And I know you know how to do it because we've already practiced it. So can you see I've already visualized that and it helps you feel more relaxed. That's my biggest tip on, on calmness. Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. For more information, please visit us at www.apna.asn.au. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.